So, last week we began a new series in our Sunday school class, and the title of this series is Worship, Biblical, and Reform. Now, throughout this class, we'll be studying the topic of worship. Over the next few months, we'll be searching the scriptures in pursuit of a biblical theology of worship. Along with that, we want to look back at the history and practice of the worship in the Reformed churches to consider how uh, those practices can inform ours today. Now, as we read and study to inform our minds and practices, the scriptures are the highest court of law for what we should do and not do, but we also don't want to cut ourselves off from God's wisdom through our brothers and sisters who have thought about this in the past. Uh, there's been much thought and study given to the topic of worship um, within the church, and we would do well. It's wise for us to take advantage of that, of that wisdom, so we'll do that as well. We'll be doing some biblical theology, some historical theology, and just thinking through these different subjects. So what to expect in this class, and this is somewhat a, a review from last week. For those who weren't here, just to give you an idea of where we're headed, through this class we'll talk about the Sabbath and the Lord's Day, We'll look at a biblical theology of worship. We'll look at the reformers' perspective on worship and consider the patristics, those early church theologians, on the topic of worship as well. We'll talk about reading in corporate worship, praying in corporate worship, singing in corporate worship, and preaching. And then we hope to end the class on the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then we'll have a Q&A to try and answer some questions and think through some uh, specific things, okay? So today we'll get to part two of the class. I started last week in this little two-week, little mini-series on Sabbath and Lord's Day. So last week we talked about the Sabbath, and we'll transition to the Lord's Day. So you have a handout in front of you, um, and hopefully that'll be somewhat helpful guide because I won't be able to read through all the scriptures and even what's in the handout. You know, there there are many other scriptures on these different points that we can bring out, but. I just want to give you something to take home, to look at, and to be able to, to work through. So Sabbath and Lord's Day, part two, from the old to the new. So again, a quick review of what I talked about last week. God created man in his image. He surrounded him with blessings to show his kindness and his love and his goodness to man. But he also set parameters for man's life. He gave him a job description as well. God gave guardrails for Adam's own good and enjoyment, and the fulfillment of that enjoyment in God was found in this word, phrase, rest. So we looked at a pattern of rest, God working and then resting. The principle, Adam and all mankind imitating God's pattern of working and resting. The precept or the command seen in the Mosaic law, the place of God's special presence, um, Eden, and then that expanded throughout the whole earth. And then the problem, unentered rest. Neither Adam nor Israel were able to enter into uh, God's rest finally. And we'll talk about that a little today as well. But today we'll focus on the Lord's Day. So first we'll consider the possibility of a new Sabbath. The possibility of a new Sabbath. And we'll start by looking at um, two concepts, two phrases, natural law and positive law. And I'll explain what those mean. And when we think about the fourth commandment, the thing that bothers us is the changing of the day, usually. And this is completely understandable. For many Christians, this is the stumbling block. 
does the fourth commandment, or we would say, doesn't the fourth commandment point back to creation, which we talked about last week? We say, yes, it does. Didn't Jesus point the Sabbath back to the creation rest, which was the seventh day? Yeah. If that's been the seventh day, if it's been the seventh day since the beginning of creation, are we even keeping the Sabbath by worshiping on the first day? Are we abandoning God's example? Does Sunday, the Lord's Day, have anything to do with the fourth commandment at all? These are some of our questions, and they're, they're good questions. Now, these aren't questions that we can turn to in our Bibles and get quick answers to, right? Um, some questions we ask, God gives us easy answers. We can turn to a verse, and it sort of settles the matter, one and done. Other questions we have to search and inquire and dig through a little more deeply. And we don't get those answers just, just by looking at one verse in, in the Bible. And that's okay. God is sharpening our wisdom and discernment and knowledge of his word by taking us into deep study of it at times, which is, again, okay. And the Sabbath and Lord's Day, seeing this concept and trying to discern what's, what's happening here is one of those deeper studies. Um, we don't want to do our theology on this subject by looking at one verse. We want to allow all of Scripture to inform how we think about this. So that's what we'll try and do. But first, I want to give some categories that I think will help us relieve some of the tension when we think about Sabbath, Lord's Day, and that uncomfortability with the change of day. I want to help us relieve some of that tension a little bit and give some categories that I think will help. And those categories are understanding the difference between natural law and positive law. Now, these aren't words that we use every day, so it's okay if you haven't heard of them. We'll, we'll talk about them. But natural law and positive law are theological terms that the church has used to help find the threads and themes of Scripture. You see this language in historic confessions like the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the 1689 uses this language as well. In the chapter on the Sabbath in paragraph 7, it says, It is the law of nature that in general a portion of time specified by God should be set apart for the worship of God. So by his word in a positive moral and perpetual command that obligates everyone in every age, he has specifically appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy to him. Okay. Now, moral law or natural law is something that is law because of the nature of God and the nature of man as his creature. Laws that are naturally written on our consciences. <clears throat> you see this in Romans chapter 2, verse 12 to 14. It says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they show that they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. They don't have the law, but they show by virtue of them being God's creatures that the work that the law is written on their hearts. That's an example of natural law or a law of nature. A positive law is something in addition to natural law, something that we don't naturally know 
but that God has to tell us. So positive laws are specific laws given by God for a specific people for a specific time and a specific purpose. Now, I know that's technical. <laughs> what does that have to do with the fourth commandment? Or we can ask, what aspects of the Sabbath are moral law written on men's hearts by nature and what aspects are positive law or additional laws given by God for a specific time? That's, that's a question we want to think through as we think about what's changed and what stays the same. That God must be worshipped as our priority is natural law. That man was made a social being connected with others shows us that corporate worship or joined worship is natural law. <clears throat> that that worship requires a specific time of rest that only God has the authority to appoint is natural law. It's written on men's hearts by nature. On the other hand, the fact that it's one day in seven is positive law. Even the specific day that God calls us to worship is a positive law. God sets it and God has the authority to change it. The feasts and ceremonies and sacrifices associated with the Sabbath in the Old Testament are positive laws. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, they fall under that same category of positive law. In other words, Abraham and King David didn't have to uh, take the Lord's Supper or practice baptism. They were positive laws. They were specific laws given to specific people at a specific time in redemptive history, right? Now, positive laws, those laws that God tells us you need to do, do this, those aren't uh, less important than natural law, those laws written on our heart by nature. Sam Renahan summarizes this idea by saying, positive laws are given in the context of covenantal life and worship, which means that they rise and they fall with their covenants. In other words, we are free to eat bacon, right? You're happy that you can eat bacon and you love it. We can eat bacon with a clear conscience because it's perfectly moral to do so. It, there, there's nothing immoral about eating bacon. But under the old covenant, it was forbidden by positive law. And that positive law has been changed. Right? So natural law, positive law, what we're thinking about the Sabbath. I said last week that there's this underlying principle, this underlying command, fourth commandment, the Sabbath. And there are things laid on top of that that were given for specific people in a specific time. Because they're positive laws, they can be taken away. But the natural law, those things written on men's heart by nature, remain the same. And that's what we're trying to think through here. Now let's look at um, an Old Testament passage that prepares us again for the possibility of a change. Again, we're trying to relieve the tension when it comes to the change in the day. We'll look at an Old Testament passage that prepares us for the possibility of a change. Yeah. Did you equate positive law to be the same as ceremonial law or civil law? Yeah. Yep. Those fall under that same category. Uh, ceremonial, civil, in the old covenant, you see specific laws um, like animal sacrifices, um, like a uh, physical uh, Levite priesthood, 
um, laws given to Israel as a nation with other nations around them that made them distinct that were given to ethnic Israel as a people and a land were given for a time and taken away. And so, yeah, I was, both of those fall under the category of positive law. Now let's look at Hosea chapter 2, verse 11. Someone go there and then just read nice and loud so everybody can hear you. Hosea chapter 2, verse 11. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. Thank you. Now, in Hosea chapter 2, verses 16, 18, and 21, they use the phrase, in that day. Now, we know from the way that the, the New Testament reads Hosea 2 that Hosea is referring to the beginnings of the new covenant. We see that in Romans 9, 25, and 1 Peter 2, verse 10. But again, Hosea is prophesying the end of Israel's Sabbaths and all her appointed feasts. The language of new feasts, new moons, and Sabbaths are words used together throughout the Old Testament to point to Israel's old covenant laws and ceremonies. That's what Colossians 2.16 is talking about. When it says... Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drinks or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. So Paul is using this collection of words which point to Israel's old covenant ceremonies. And he's saying those things are done away with. In context, he's fighting against those who are attempting to lay old covenant laws on first century believers after the coming of the new covenant. So he wasn't saying don't obey the fourth commandment. He was saying don't obey the fourth commandment like an Old Testament Israelite. And when he's using those collection of words, that's what he's getting at. Feasts, new moons, Sabbath. And that's what you see in Hosea 2.11. I will put an end to all her feasts and her Sabbaths. Old covenant principle Sabbaths. Now, when the Ten Commandments um, are introduced to Israel in Exodus 20, uh, verses 1 and 2, what does it say? Turn to Exodus 20 and we'll look at verses 1 to 2. Exodus 20, verses 1 to 2. And whoever gets there, just read it. Nice and loud. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Okay. <clears throat> now, what was the motivation for Israel's obedience here? What was the motivation? What do you see there? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The motivation here behind the obedience is deliverance from the land of Egypt. What is the motivation for obedience in the new covenant? It's deliverance from bondage to sin, which Israel's deliverance from Egypt was only a type. It pointed to that deliverance from sin ultimately. 
The Sabbath was a sign of the Exodus redemption and pointed forward to the new Exodus in Christ. Right? Now, let's, let's transition here. I'm, I'm trying to build a case. I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. <laughs> I'm trying to build a case and, again, relieve some of the tension when we think about the change of the day. Participation in the Lord's day. Jesus gains lost rest. Now, try to remember the uh, theme from last week, the idea of rest. I'm sort of transitioning here. The idea of rest from last week. Um, It was to uh, bring banished sinners into paradise. Uh, Jesus had to become the second Adam for his people. He came in our likeness so that he could obey God's perfect law and succeed where Adam failed as our, our representative, our federal head. Now, Paul teaches this in 1 Corinthians 15, 45. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Let me have someone read that for us. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Oh, sorry. Um, Go down to verse 49, if you don't mind. Just as we have borne the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. To uh, 49? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 49? Mm-hmm. The whole thing? Yes. Okay, sure. You don't mind. Uh, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. <clears throat> the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Okay, thank you. So here we want to think about, so we looked at um, the possibility of a new Sabbath from Hosea. We looked at uh, the fact that the day, God saying it's on this day, is even a positive law. The natural law written on men's heart is that God must be worshipped, that he must be worshipped corporately, uh, and that there must be rest associated with that worship. The positive law is the day. Here, we're looking at what rest was intended to be and how Christ brings us into that rest that Adam and Israel failed to enter. So Jesus is placed in the same set of circumstances as Adam in order to obey for us where Adam failed to. After Jesus was baptized, Matthew 4.1 says that Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He had to face the one who tempted um, Adam and Eve and succeed. R.C. Sproul said the first Adam was tempted to rely on his own wisdom instead of God's revealed will. The second Adam was likewise tempted to abandon God's will that he subdue the serpent through suffering. When Satan tried to get Jesus to provide for his needs at the wrong time or to enter into his reign immediately and without pain, 
Unlike the first Adam, Jesus overcame Satan's temptation, setting the stage for his final defeat on the cross. So the Old Testament looks forward to this, what Jesus accomplishes and says in Ezekiel 34, 15, I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. When Jesus comes on the scene, he promises rest to those who believe. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 29, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So Jesus kept the law. He was an obedient Jew. A part of his fulfilling all righteousness was that he kept the old covenant Sabbath. But in Matthew 12, 7, Jesus says that God's intention in the Sabbath was not outward observance, but compassion for your fellow man. And in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Jesus says that God's intention was kind and generous and not oppressive. The Sabbath was a goodness and a delight, not a prison. And when we think about this, uh, the fourth commandment, I think of, do we approach our ideas about the fourth commandment, about the Sabbath, uh, the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, with Isaiah or Psalm 119 in mind, where it says, oh, how I love your law, or is the Sabbath outside of that, that category? When we think about the fourth commandment, do we love it? Do we see it like Proverbs 4 says, God's commandments are life to those who find them and healing to their flesh. I want to come back to this later, but I want to sort of put into our minds a um, viewing God's law as positive, as good, as a delight, not as something that's oppressive, that God is sort of trying to keep us from our fun day or Sunday fun day. But he's given us the Sabbath, which is a good thing in the Christian Sabbath, uh, the Lord's Day. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> by Jesus' righteous life, his voluntary sacrifice, his death, burial, and his resurrection, those were the, became the pivot point in history and in redemption of the cosmos. And in Jesus' resurrection, along with the teaching of the apostolic example in the New Testament, these became a crucial point of change. And that change was a change of day. In Matthew 12, 8, Jesus says that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And it wasn't to show some practice that Jesus had that was distinct from what God commanded, but to show that as God, he had the authority to reinstitute or change. Now, <clears throat> the moment we've all been waiting for, <laughs> the change of day. Um, why do Christians worship on the first day of the week. <clears throat> when I was in college, I had a friend who was a Seventh-day Adventist. And it was funny because people used to say, they, they, they thought we were brothers because we looked like one another. Um, we both had weird things in common like severe allergies. And we would both come to class like wiping our nose and making these weird noises. And people always thought that we were brothers. And we would, it was a great friend, and we used to have great conversations, but we would talk about the Sabbath. 
and it was like this duel, the Christian versus the, <laughs> the Seventh-day Adventist, not that Seventh-day Adventist, anyway. It was this duel, you know, about the Sabbath. And he would always ask me, as we would go round and round, and he would ask me, well, he would say, show me one verse in the Bible that says, God said, thou shalt worship on the first day. And I would, he would always feel like he just killed the argument because I can never go to a verse, hesitation, three, four, that says, thou shalt worship on the first day. And it would frustrate me because I felt like he won. And I was, I was newer to the faith, and I didn't have a sort of doctrine of the Lord's Day and the Sabbath. But he was looking for a proof text, one proof text that could sort of close the case. Like, you can show me that the, the argument is done. Now, is that the way we want to approach hermeneutics or the study of Scripture? Do we want to approach the Bible looking for one proof text to close the case? Like I mentioned earlier, some things are easy in the Bible to find an answer for. Some things we can go to, here's the proof text, you know, your call to holiness, it's done, settled. Um, don't commit adultery, done, settled. But when it comes down to the Sabbath Lord's Day, we ought to be willing to, yes, be pleased when God gives us those easy answers, but also be willing to do the deeper study to get to these things that are just as important. And again, that's what we want to try and do. And as we approach scripture, that study is necessary. Now, God intended for his holy word to be understood not only by direct explicit commands, but by comparing scripture to scripture and by the examples of the apostles. If we approach the Bible in a way that demands God give explicit commands for everything we do, Thou shalt and thou shalt not. We're approaching scripture in a wrong way, and we're actually denying a hermeneutical principle that we see the apostles themselves using. We want to approach the Bible and interpret scripture the way Jesus and the apostles interpreted scripture. You won't be able to find the word Trinity in the Bible. This is a foundational doctrine for the Christian. Can you go to a text in scripture where it says Trinity, where it uses that phrase? Well, no. But we've seen that the way in, in redemptive revelation, using the data of scripture, it's brought us to this conclusion that God is triune. And we're looking at verses and we're putting them together and saying, this is what God is saying and the scope of his word. And that's how we should interpret and approach scripture. Trust me, I love the easy answers. <laughs> I would love to go to a text that just says, gives us an easy answer for everything, but that's not always what the Bible does. But I do think on this subject, we do have some answers, and I think that they're clear. So let's look at some of these passages, principles, and examples to show the change of day. Christians worship on the first day of the week because it's the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. Matthew 28, 1, writing about the resurrection says, now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Luke 24, 1. Writing about the resurrection says, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. John 20, 19 shows the same time. 
On the evening of um, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, "Peace be with you." Now this is also the day that Jesus appeared to his disciples. After his resurrection, the first time Jesus met and gathered to with his sort of core group of disciples, it was on the first day. Thomas wasn't there, but Jesus waited until the next first day to reveal himself to him. You see that in John 20, 26. So is this a coincidence? Or is a pattern being set? A pattern is being set. Christians meet on the first day of the week because it was something that was established by the churches of the, that, that the apostles started. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church about giving a special offering for the needy, he told them to give on the first day of the week. But not just for them. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 4 says, Now concerning, and this is in your notes as well, these, these verses. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. I said this to them, and I'm saying this to you as well. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that, so that there will be no collection when I come. The churches in Corinth and Galatia took their collections on the first day because the apostles were instructing them to meet for worship on the first day. We see this pattern in Acts chapter 20, verse 6 to 7. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them in Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Something else that's important for us to consider on this subject. John, when he was exiled to the island of Patmos, was given this divinely inspired revelation. It was a vision. And in Revelation 1.10, he tells us that, he tells us when this happened. And he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. On the Lord's day. Now, <clears throat> The church for the past 2,000 years has seen this verse as a crucial text in showing the pattern of the Lord's Day. When the word Lord, referring to God, is attached to something in the Bible, it shows that it's distinct. In Isaiah 58, 13, um, it says, uh, it calls the Sabbath, my holy day and the holy of the Lord. Matthew 28:12 uses a similar description when it says that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And John uses the term, or when John uses the term Lord's Day in Revelation, it's not by accident. His readers would have understood this designation of Lord as making a specific day and time distinct. <clears throat> what do we call the uh, Lord's, uh, the uh, uh, Communion. We call it what? The Lord's Supper. That's not to say that every supper we eat doesn't come from the Lord. It's to say that there's something distinct about this meal together. It's the Lord's Supper. And in the same way, when we think about the Lord's Day, 
It's not to say that every day that we enjoy isn't given by the Lord, but something is distinct about this day. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now, it's not unusual um, when people start to struggle and think through the, uh, the Lord's day and the Christian Sabbath and the day change that uh, because of the struggle there, we can sometimes either say, well, people have been going, you know, arguing about this for a long time. Why don't we just worship on whatever day is a day of rest for us? Why does it matter that it's, it's, it's a Sunday? If my week is crazy and I know my schedule and the, the day that's best for me is a Wednesday, why don't I just make Wednesday my, my day of rest? Why can it be Tuesday or Thursday? And because of that sort of tension, we can either completely neglect the fourth commandment or we can just sort of make it whatever we sort of want it to be. But again, that's not how we want to approach scripture. God, God has spoken on this and he has spoken for the good of his people and he has given us a day. The pattern of the New Testament reminds us that, yes, all our days belong to the Lord, but there's a distinction made concerning the first day of the week. John, who wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. One author said, by this time, all Christians understood that the Lord's day, the first day of the week, was the day of the Lord's resurrection, John 20, 19, and the day of the Lord's pouring out of the spirit, Pentecost, the day Christians everywhere met under the Lord for worship, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. The Lord of the church universal has a day. It is the first day of the week. The celebration of the Lord's day in memory of the resurrection goes back to the apostolic age. Philip Chaff, who was one of the greatest historians in church history, said, the custom is confirmed by the testimonies of the earliest post-apostolic writers as Barnabas, Ignatius, Justin Martyr. It is also confirmed by the younger Pliny, he says. Now, all of these men are for the, from the first and second century, AD or 60 AD to 165 AD. That's how early this, this practice is. Schaff goes on to say that the Didache, early Christian writings, calls the first day the Lord's day of the Lord. Nothing short of apostolic precedence can account for the universal religious observance in the churches of the second century. He says, there is no dissenting voice. In other words, there's universal <laughs> uh, agreement that the first day of the week has been practiced in the Christian church as the Lord's day. Now let's transition to that, to the idea again of entering God's rest. Last week I said that the Sabbath, like marriage and labor, are based in creation. But the new creation, purchased by Christ, sacrificial life and death, gives us a new context and significance to those creation ordinances. That doesn't mean that uh, they completely uh, transform, that won't happen until Christ returns. But it does mean that since Christ's first coming and the new creation has been inaugurated or started, we're in this in-between state where the new is overlapping the old. 
Marriage now points to Christ and his church, Ephesians 5.25. Work is now done in anticipation that Christ is coming back for his church, 2 Thessalonians 3.6-15. I know. In the same way, that was my girl. In the same way that those other creation ordinances aren't over but have changed, the Sabbath has not been done away with, but it's changed because of what Christ has done. And so for now, we joyfully observe the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, as we have entered that rest and participate in weekly signs of it. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. Hebrews chapter 3, 7 to 4, 11. I want to read all of this because this is, this is important and I want to sort of walk through this because this is a text that comes up a lot when we think about the Sabbath. Um, let me break this up. Let me have someone read Hebrews 3 verses 7 through um, 15. Who wants to read that? And then someone else read Hebrews chapter 3 verses um, 16 to 4 verse 7. Hebrews 3.16 to 4.7. Will? And then Hebrews um, 4.8 to 4.13. Who wants to read that? All right. Kyle, thank you. So Ben, Will, Kyle. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts when they provoke me. As in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. <laughs> For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. Thank you. <clears throat> For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he just said, as I swore in my wrath, 
they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Thank you. I know that was a longer passage, but I wanted us to read through that together. <clears throat> now, there are different interpretations of this passage. Some look at it and they see obvious proof uh, that the Sabbath, Lord's Day, is still relevant. Others will look at it and say that this proves that the Sabbath is done away with. But the main part of this text that a lot of the debate is over ends up being Hebrews 4, 9, and 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. First in this text, we notice that the Sabbath rest is seen as God's rest at creation. The rest that Hebrews 4, 3 says we've entered is compared with Psalm 95, 11, where it says, how, where it says, they shall not enter my rest, God's rest. Something else to notice is that some aspects of the Sabbath rest is still a future reality for the believer. So something that we haven't experienced fully. So <clears throat> Hebrews, in quoting Psalm 95, which is a picture of Israel's wandering in the wilderness, says it, it's, it's showing that the point of the wilderness imagery is to show that the present situation of the believers is similar. We've been delivered from Egypt, our slavery to sin, but we haven't been brought into the promised land, that final rest with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Just like the Old Testament Israel was traveling to Canaan, the land of rest, and given Sabbaths along the way, the New Testament people of God are traveling to the new heavens and new earth and given Sabbaths, Lord's Day rests along the way. And I should also say here that in Joshua 21:45, you see God fulfilling his promises to his people. Uh, he did bring them into a land of rest. That's why it says if Joshua had um, given them this, uh, this rest, there, there wouldn't remain a, a day or a time. Um, he did give them rest, but they did not enter into that technical term, eschatological rest, that rest to which it pointed. Just want to qualify that there. <clears throat> anyway, what does all this mean? It means that although we have rest in Christ, which we saw earlier, some aspects of our rest, some aspect of it is still future. The preacher here in Hebrews is encouraging his readers to persevere. He first gives them confidence in Christ as their high priest. Then in Hebrews 4, 3, he says, 
he who or we who have believed enter that rest, but then he encourages them to strive to enter God's rest. Hebrews 4.11 says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So like I mentioned last week, it's clear that the Sabbath rest for man wasn't instituted only at the time of the Mosaic law. God's rest was from his finished work or from his finished work was calling men to enter into that rest. And in Christ, we have entered into that rest and we, we are being rested each Lord's day as we go towards that ultimate rest. Now, I'm not a big nap person, but I know some people are nap people. And they say that when they wake up from their naps, they feel rejuvenated and energized and their head feels more clear to work and finish their day. The Lord's day is God napping us. It's not our overnight sleep that will be the new heavens and new earth. We're headed there, but he gives us Lord's day naps. We get rested, we get rejuvenated. Um, the Puritans saw the uh, Lord's Day as this market. They would say it's a market day for the soul of the saint. You come and get all that the Lord promises to you through his divine means of grace. And it gives us strength and grace for another week as we come to the next Lord's Day and he gives us rest. And all of this is moving towards an ultimate rest, which is found in Christ or is found in the, in the, new, the new heavens and new earth because of what Christ has purchased. <clears throat> um, we got a couple minutes here. I'll, in closing, I, I named this last part of my class, Where's My List? <laughs> what I mean is, a lot of the times when we think about the Sabbath and the Lord's Day, um, we want a list. What can I do? What shouldn't I do? What's appropriate? What's not appropriate? As Christians, we shouldn't view the commandments <clears throat> as a way to get right with God. We know this. I'm just saying this anyway. But we should view it as an opportunity to do good works that are pleasing to God. The Lord cares about our hearts as we obey his commands. If we view the fourth commandment as a straitjacket on our Sunday fun day, we're viewing it the wrong way. The Lord gave us a day of rest for our own good. And we live in a society where if anyone needs a fourth uh, the, a commandment of rest, it's us. We, the, we, we are such a works and success-driven, goal-driven culture that even God saying rest is oppressive to us sort of succeeding in our, our goals. But he gives this for our good. And trust me, it's, when I come to the, the Lord's Day and I think about the fourth commandment, I, that, that list of do's and do nots, it, it would make things a lot easier. We could just say, am I doing the list? Am I not doing these things? But that's not how the Lord has, I think, given us to approach this. Christian wisdom and maturity, the word, the Holy Spirit, gives us the guidance that we need and what we ought to be doing and not doing. A lot of the times when Christians come to the conviction about the Lord's Day Sabbath, <clears throat> or the Christian Sabbath, they become anxious and fearful because they don't want to do the wrong things on the Lord's Day. They wonder, can I ride my bike on the Lord's Day? Can I go jogging after church on Sunday? Can I go to the store to buy medicine or food? A lot of the time, these specific cases uh, aren't, they don't have answers um, that are 
easy and just sort of one, one and done. And the Lord doesn't give us a thing to approach it that way. Although a list of things permitted and things prohibited would be a lot easier for us. Like I mentioned, God hasn't given us that, but he has given us Christian wisdom. Many of these questions don't have definite answers. Much more of the question has to do with your motive, the motive behind the person as they're doing the thing that they're doing. God is concerned not just with the outward act, but with the heart. But I'll give you some starting principles. I know that's what you want anyway. (laughs) Here's a starting principle. Make yourself available to the means of grace on the Lord's day. Start by coming to worship regularly. Coming to the means of grace, attending to the preached word, the Lord's Supper, those means of grace that he gives us. He uses these things to nourish nourish us through his, his sacraments. The pattern we see in the scriptures is also that the day of worship is a day of rest, a guiding principle, rest from worldly employments. We don't want to base our theology off of exceptions. I know there are. Um, church history hidden. Those who have thought deeply on this, even our confession, uh, we, we recognize that there are exceptions. Pastors are working on Sunday. Is, are they prohibited to do that? Are they sinning in their labor, in their tending to the sheep? No, it is a work of mercy. It is a good work that the Lord has given them to do in feeding the sheep. I understand some people work in a field of uh, medicine or someone's a fireman or you know maybe a police officer or whatever. I recognize that there are exceptions. But as a general rule, worship is associated with rest, a rest from worldly employments, a rest from the things that are within the normal cycle of our work week and work. I'm going to read something from um, Walter Cantry that I thought was really helpful. And he says it better than I think I could. He says, many of the particular questions men and women ask cannot be given a definite answer. May I go bicycle riding on Sunday? Because younger children are not equipped to discern their own heart motives or the application of general principles, parents must make some rules for their household. Perhaps one family will have children who are so attached to bicycle riding on six days of the week that they will tell their children no bike riding on Sunday. They intend to make that special day filled with a different activity on the Lord's Day. As soon as one parent tells his child, we do not ride our bicycles on Sunday, it is the Lord's Day, along will come a Christian neighbor with his children, happy and riding their bikes. His motive may have been to give his young children necessary exercise so that they can be still in evening worship. This family is riding together to the park where they will find a quiet spot to work on scripture memory. It is all right, or rather, is it all right to go jogging on the Lord's Day? Some Christians are fitness fanatics. They jog for seven miles every day, increasing their endurance, checking heart rates, etc. To them, it is an all-consuming exercise. They will do well to decide to devote the day to the Lord and not to take from him a major portion of his holy time. For them, jogging would distract from joyful communion with God. 
A Christian friend may be very, may be very much motivated by a desire to spend Sunday afternoon in reading biblical prayer, um, bi- biblical books of prayer. However, he has a job which requires him to sit at a desk all week. As he attempts his Sunday afternoon reading, he may nod off to sleep and have no devotions. Next time, he will run a half mile to get his blood moving so that he can spend more time and give more of his spiritual energy to communion with God when he finishes. This is one or two of a thousand different circumstances and examples where do not and do's are not the best approach. The Lord is concerned with the heart. And I think that we would do well to approach the Lord's day in that way, discerning our hearts. The principle is rest, ceasing from labor, rest and mostly worship, which stipulates rest. So as we approach the Lord's day and as we approach the Christian Sabbath, have those principles in mind. And I mentioned this at the beginning of last week's class. I'll mention it again. I don't intend for a 45, 50 minute class to give to be um, exhaustive, but to hopefully be accessible and a propeller to start you thinking on some of these things. Okay, so continue reading, uh, continue learning, pray for Christian maturity as we approach these things. That's what I have for us on the topic of the Christian Lord's Day. Feel free to write down questions, put them in the box, um, email pastors, come and talk to me afterwards about specific things. All of that is perfectly fine. But um, I'm over, so let me pray for us and uh, dismiss us, okay? Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that you would continue to guide us in Christian wisdom and maturity. Um, We pray that you would help us to see uh, your word, uh, the fourth commandment specifically, all your commands, but and now thinking about the fourth commandment and the Christian Sabbath and the Lord's Day as a joyful uh, delight, as something that you give for our rest. Um, Guard us from approaching it like um, a Pharisee, but help us to approach it like a Christian um, who sees your law as good and joyful. And um, I pray that you would give us grace, Lord, today to worship in spirit and in truth, um, to worship you with um, hearts that are contrite. And uh, may you be pleased to give us all that we need in this day, the marketplace for the soul of the saint. Encourage us, uphold us, renew us, restore us. All those things you know we need for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.